This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. So why do seagulls live near the sea? Because if they live near the bay, they'd be bagels. Welcome to Wings and Things, where you'll find real answers to real questions about everything you want to know about pet birds. Care, feeding, bird products, travel, and more. Everything to make your frequent flyer a happy camper. From parrots to parakeets, cockatiels to cockatoos, you'll have a bird's eye view of everything there is to know about your fun, feathered friends. So, spread your wings and get ready to fly on Wings and Things. Welcome to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Barbara Heidenreich from Good Bird, Inc. Robin Shawokas has the week off. Today I have a special guest with me. It's Dr. Sharman Hoppus of Shubat Exotic Bird Health Center at Texas A&M University. We'll be right back after these messages. Sitting on a branch overlooking the parking lot, the pigeons watched as a Mercedes pulled in below them. What do you think, one bird said to the other. Should we put a deposit on that car? Stay perched. Wings and Things will be soaring back right after these messages. What if you could protect the life of your cat with something so simple and affordable that you already use every day? Get ready for the evolution of kitty litter. It's Pretty Litter. Along with all the features you've come to expect from your kitty litter, Pretty Litter's patented and scientific formula will also monitor your cat's health and detect illnesses early while providing industry-leading odor control. Two kitty litters, same cat, same price. But there's one important difference. Pretty Litter reacts to your cat's waste by detecting health issues simply by changing color. And the key is that Pretty Litter detects these issues before your cat shows symptoms of physical illness or pain, likely saving you major dollars in vet bills while protecting the health of your cat. What do you think, little guy? Ready to switch litter? Pretty Litter. Colorful insight into your cat's health. Go to prettylittercats.com forward slash cat 101 or use coupon code cat 101 to get 20% off your first subscription order. Let's talk pets on petliferadio.com. A Frenchman walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The bartender asks, where did you get that thing? The parrot replies, in France. There are millions of them. Don't have a canary. Wings and Things is back. Welcome back to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. Today I have Dr. Sharman Hoppus with me. And, uh, well, first let me welcome you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Barbara. I'm very excited to be here. Great. And Dr. Hoppus has a great wealth of experience and information to share with us today. But I thought we'd get started with maybe having you share a little bit about how you got into this industry and how you got started with avian medicine. I've been a veterinarian for 15 years, and honestly, when I was in vet school, I had no interest in birds, and for the first couple of years out of vet school, I also worked predominantly on dogs and cats. What happened to me is what happens to so many pet owners out there. Somebody came in with a cockatoo that had a broken blood feather. I was there. I pulled the feather and took care of the bird. The owner, within a few weeks, called me and said, I have to find a home for this bird, not knowing anything about cockatoos. And knowing how loving she was and how wonderful she was and how sweet she was. And she loved me. I took this bird home and it changed my life. Within six months, I was doing an avian residency. (laughs) (laughs) 
and I was contacting every basically avian behaviorist in the country trying to figure out how to deal with this bird who was a screaming, feather-picking, basically love machine. <laughs> it's, it's nice to know that the avian veterinarians are also struggling with the same problems that your basic companion parrot owner is struggling with. <laughs> yes, we are. Yay. But you, we can, uh, people that do animal training and behavior consulting can help with that. And of course, our avian vets are here to help us with so many other things too. But one thing I didn't ask you about is how you got involved here with Texas A&M, because this this is kind of, well, maybe a couple of years now you've been here at a I've been here for three years, and I was in private practice for 15 years before, well, actually, I guess 13 years before I came here. And I came back into academia because I wanted to make a difference, not just with clients, but with students. I wanted to help train students to be avian veterinarians, and I also wanted to get involved in some of the research. There's so little that's known about birds out there. There's so little known about drugs that we need to give them. There's so little known about diseases that I wanted to basically do my part to help fill those gaps. I think that's so important too. The more that I have the opportunity to lecture to vet students, I'm, I'm really surprised at how little opportunity there is for them to learn about birds in avian medicine. They have very little exposure to birds in vet school and that's across the country. And most of the exposure that they do have is elective. So a veterinary student could honestly go all the way through Texas A&M University and have maybe one handling lab in birds, and that's all. Mm. After you know, by the time they've graduated, they can literally have just almost no experience at all if they don't if they choose to. Right. Well, and that also makes the point of how um, how much work those that do get get their avian certification that they've really put in a lot of extra work on their own yes they have to qualify for that and there's about 50 students every year that get really actively involved in avian and exotic medicine there's a zoo club and they are very active they get speakers from all across the country to come speak and these are the people that set up avian handling labs and reptile handling labs and small mammal handling labs and spend a lot of extra time. We usually have anywhere from seven to eight students volunteering out at the Shubat Aviary to do enrichment and training with our birds and you've been you've been a part of that too, doing lectures for them. And these are all people that are putting extra time to learn about birds and bird behavior and bird medicine. And thank goodness because obviously we need those people. Yes. I, I always hear how people um, you know, complain that they don't have a qualified avian vet within good driving distance. So the more of them we can get out there, the better. Well, when I was in private practice, we would be looking for veterinarians to hire or to do relief work, and that was one of the problems we had is I couldn't find anybody. If I had a day off, I couldn't find anybody to take care of birds. Mm-hmm. You know, all the veterinarians would see dogs and cats, but mm-hmm. very few of them would see the birds. So mm-hmm. that was another goal of mine was to go into the academic setting and hopefully excite people about birds. And I think I've been able to do that. Definitely. I've seen you speak about all this. You're very passionate about it, which is fantastic. Yes, there's, there's definitely a love for the birds. Yes. <laughs> a genuine love yes. of that. Yes, oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> so explain a little bit about the research that you do here, because that's a whole other aspect to your responsibilities. When I was in private practice, um, one of the diseases that um, we were seeing quite often was proventricular dilatation disease. And this is a disease that affects parrots, um, predominantly macaws, cockatoos, conures, African greys, although it can affect any parrot. Those are probably the most predominantly affected. And this can affect a baby bird or an adult bird. And at that time, it was a disease that we did not know what the, the cause of it was. So these birds were literally coming into my practice 
and dying. Um, they were starving to death because their gastrointestinal tract, their stomach and intestines were no longer working. The nerves had been damaged and it had just literally shut down. And these birds would be eating and trying to live and they would just starve to death in front of you. It was the most heartbreaking thing I have ever experienced to have, I mean, and, and there's absolutely nothing that I could do. And once these birds came in and started spiraling downhill, there was nothing that you could do. So um, that, when I came to Texas A&M, that was one of the things when they asked me, what research project would you like to look, you know, look into? I mean, it was just basically out of my mouth before I even thought about it. I said, I would really like to see if we can find the etiological agent in a treatment and test for proventricular dilatation disease. And I'm sure they were very excited to hear that. Actually, <laughs> after they did a, liter a literature search and kind of looked at how difficult this disease, you know, for 30 years it's been basically evading us. There were people that weren't nearly as excited about it as I was, but I have to tell you, they jumped right in, and we have really made some, we have made some progress, so I'm very excited. So how does a, a person with a parrot, what, what are they looking for that might let them know that their bird might be experiencing this very deadly problem? Well, unfortunately, one of the problems with this disease is it's kind of like it aids in people. A bird can carry it for a long time with no clinical signs. And so the exposure may have been five years ago or six years ago before the owner even got the bird. So that basically can be totally missed by the owner, unfortunately. But the early signs of this disease may be a bird that is having um, problems with basically keeping weight on. They may be regurgitating intermittently. They may have you know, intermittent bouts of diarrhea or they may even have signs um, where they have trouble, difficulty perching or, or standing or a little bit, you know, kind of off balance. Mm. So all of these signs can be early signs of proventricular dilatation disease. I remember once being told to look for um, whole food items in the stool. Yes. Is that true too? When they have um, basically diarrhea or base, or what happens is the gastrointestinal tract slows down and stops digesting well, and so some of their droppings will have whole seeds. I've even seen birds pass whole pellets oh, wow. in, their, in their digestive system. It just, they're just not absorbing. What this disease actually does, when people think about proventricular dilatation disease, they think about this being a stomach and intestine disease, a, you know, a gastric and intestinal disease. It really isn't. It's a nerve disease. This is a disease, a virus, that affects the nerves. And if it affects the nerves of the gastrointestinal tract, the stomach and intestines literally aren't innervated anymore. The nerves that are um, causing that stomach and intestines to function stops working. And so the stomach and intestines stop working. So it's not a disease process that's actually inside the intestines or the stomach. It's actually in the nerves that innervate it. And the same nerves... Um, of the brain and spinal cord can be affected too, which is why some birds won't show gastrointestinal signs. They won't show diarrhea or regurgitation. They'll show difficulty stepping up. They may show signs of basically being off balance. So what people really need to know is that there are multiple signs out there of this disease. It's not just one thing, which is another reason it's so difficult to diagnose. And being that it's a virus, um, the understanding then is that it's contagious as well. Yes. Um, until recently, we were not sure which virus it was. We knew it was a virus, and you'd think in this day and age it would be so easy just to test for 
you know, a virus and find it. The problem is, it's just been recently that we've actually been able to come up with some testing that could look at all of the different viruses across a huge genome and say, okay, this test is going to test for all of these different types of viruses, which is what allowed us to find it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it was just a matter of trying to find it in tissues and blood samples. And if you don't know what you're looking for, sometimes that can be very difficult. And it's, mm -hmm. it's basically been evading us for, for decades. Well, and being that it is a contagious disease, is there anything that, that companion parrot owners should be keeping in mind, some practices they may want to take? We think that this disease is transmitted in the feces. And so obviously good hygiene is important. If you bring a new bird home, you should isolate it from new bird, I mean from your old birds, from your collection, um, at least 90 days. You should have it checked out by a veterinarian. Now this will not 100% protect you. Like I said, this is a disease that can literally be latent in the bird for a very long time, for years. But it certainly will give you some idea um, of the overall health of this bird. And one of the things that will, sometimes with viruses, if a bird gets stressed, like coming into a new home, that is when they may be more likely to um, break with the disease. So that's mm -hmm. another reason that a, a quarantine is really important. Mm -hmm. But keeping them clean, keeping the feces picked up, feeding your birds um, in a setting basically where you aren't mixing bowls and you're you know, basically trying to become somewhat um, hygienic between birds will help also. Mm. That's good information. Now, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about diagnosis, I think, in the second half of the program, so we'll save that. But for now, what have people been able to do for treatment? I know you said there's not really a whole, a real cure for it at this point, but are there some things that you can do to help alleviate some of the symptoms? Yes. Actually, we don't have a cure for the disease, and there have been some cases where people felt like certain drugs have cured the disease. The problem, again, is this is such a difficult disease to diagnose at this time that there's no way, how can you t say you've cured something that was difficult, you know, almost impossible to diagnose to start with. But it is an inflammatory disease. What happens is it um, causes inflammation all around those nerves, and we have been using anti-inflammatories. And some of these birds that come in really, really ill, um, putting them on anti-inflammatories will oftentimes reduce the inflammation and make them feel better for a long time. And some of these birds have been literally brought from the brink of death and kept alive for years just on anti-inflammatory th wow. um, therapy. So there is some hope as far as keeping them comfortable and alive for at least a period of time until we can hopefully come up with a cure. Wow. Well, that, that's good to know. Good news there. Well, let's go ahead. That, oh, one go thing ahead. I was going to say, the key to this is diagnosing this early. What I have found is that the earlier you diagnose this disease and the faster you get them on treatment, on anti-inflammatory therapy, the more likely you are to have a successful treatment. The birds that come in really, really ill, although some of them you can bring back, they are the ones that tend to basically continue to go downhill even on a therapy. So catching this as early as possible, early clinical signs is really critical. So maybe things like weighing your bird on a regular basis would be really helpful yes. so you can note those diet, those weight changes, weight fluctuations. Yeah, and you know what I tell owners, you know, I tell them don't, don't, don't get, you know, crazy about it, but just, you know, monitor their stools too, mm -hmm. you know, their droppings. If you're noticing changes in color and consistency or numbers or if you're seeing whole seeds dropping through, those are things to, to catch very early too. Yeah. And at least let your veterinary know that there's a change. Right. I was going to say change in behavior. I always I think when uh, my Amazon not too long ago had a mummified egg, 
um, that she was trying to pass. But the first thing I noticed is that she had decreased her eating, her, just little tiny behavioral changes that made me go, I think something's up here. And then, you know, of course, by the time it was enough to, for me to take action, it was the weekend and scrambling around. I think I even called you at yes, one point. Did. <laughs> but fortunately, she passed it on her own and, and was fine after that. But, um, but it was a little tiny behavior change that was the first indicator that something was up. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and take a little break, and we'll come back and learn a little bit more about some of the exciting research that's being done in regards to PDD here at Texas A&M. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay perched. Wings and Things will be soaring back right after these messages. Put on a perfectly possum pet party. Having an awesome birthday or adoption day celebration for your four-legged friend? Or just want a fun excuse to throw a fun party with your friends from the dog park? Deck out your party with Molly and Bandit Pet Party Accessories, party products designed specifically for pets. There are wearables, including adjustable pet party hats, bow ties, and tutus. The photo prop kits include funny glasses and hats. The party supplies and decorations include coordinating table covers, party banners, cake decorations and treat bowls, cups, and bags. Everything you need to create great memories and Instagram-worthy photos. They're available in two colorful themes, Tropical and Fireman. It's a dog's life. Celebrate it with Molly and Bandit Pet Party at mollyandbanditpetparty.com slash petlife. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. A Frenchman walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The bartender asks, where did you get that thing? The parrot replies, in France. There are millions of them. Don't have a canary. Wings and Things is back. Welcome back to Wings and Things. I'm here with Dr. Sharman Hoppus from Texas A&M University, and she's been sharing with us some information about the latest research going on with PDD. But I thought we might get into some of the history of the research, so maybe you can tell us what has been done with PDD already. There's actually been quite a bit done, and Bran Ritchie has been very active in the research of PDD. Um, I would say for the last at least 10 years, people have active, actively been looking at the etiological agent or the cause of this disease and looking for treatments and looking for diagnostic tests. And every time we basically had a bird that passed away from this disease, any virus that we located in that bird was researched out to see if that was the, the agent. And so we've looked at probably half a dozen different viruses over the last 10 years trying to narrow it down. Um, so there has been a lot of people working very, very diligently on this disease. It's just been in the last few months that three groups, basically a group of physicians in California and then a group at the University of Columbia and then us here at Texas A&M have actually made some breakthroughs. And what the university um, in uh, Columbia and the group in California, they are actually the ones that came up with this this viral test that literally looks at huge numbers of viruses at one time that was able to allow us to find to focus in on this virus and what they've identified and this is not 100% for sure but we are we're fairly certain that this is the agent of PDD and it's a born virus this is a neurotropic virus which means it affects the nerves and it's known best um, for a disease that it causes in horses equine encephalitis mm -hmm. And it does cause very similar lesions and similar clinical signs in horses as what we see in birds. So it fits basically the clinical signs. It also fits in the fact that it's a difficult virus to find. So even when they were dealing with equine, it's not an easy virus to find. So it also fits that in the fact that it's been so difficult for us to identify this virus. 
And since then, while they were doing basically what are called um, DNA tests, looking for this virus, PCR tests, we were looking at it from a different angle, doing serological. We were looking at proteins in the brain, trying to basically work back to the virus. And what we found is that the proteins that we were looking at um, were also very similar to what you would look at with the same type of proteins would be in a coronavirus. And now we are culturing this. And our goal at Texas A&M is to fulfill Koch's postulates and show that Bornavirus is the cause of proventricular dilatation disease in birds. So what about the information that we used to get in the past where um, diagnosis was like through a crop biopsy? Is that still relevant? The crop biopsy is definitely very relevant. And right now, since we don't have a definitive test, all of the testing, whether it's in California or Columbia, I mean, um, the University of Columbia or at A&M, all of our tests is basically being validated right now, which means they're not really open to the general public mm -hmm. to, to utilize. Um, the crop biopsy looks for lesions, and it's actually not the best site to get a biopsy. The best site to get a biopsy would be the adrenal gland or the ventriculus or the proventriculus, organs that are inside the bird. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, those organs are very difficult to get to safely. So the crop, even though it's less likely to have a lesion in it, has been our only area that we can basically biopsy safely. And, in, and when you do that crop biopsy, you, do you have to actually hit an area where that virus might be located? It well, may we, not be we all throughout the crop. Yeah, right? we actually take several samples, and it's depending on the size of the bird, obviously. Right. And we try to find an area with a nerve and a blood vessel. And so we basically are more likely to get a, a component of the virus there or the lesion if okay. we get that. But even then, even on basically birds that pass away, that die from this, only about 70% of those birds have lesions in their crop. And then when you deal with live birds where you're taking small sections, um, it goes down to about 60% accuracy. So, you know, you're, you're putting a bird through a procedure that you may or may not get a definitive answer. What I tell clients is if it's positive, it's positive. It's if, it's, if it's negative, it still doesn't mean that the bird doesn't have PD. Right, right. And so those positives are, because I remember, I think for a while, they weren't confident that a positive was a true positive, but they are now. I yeah. feel confident yeah. that a positive is a positive. Okay. What I don't feel confident is that a negative is a negative. Right. But hopefully in the very near future, A&M and um, these other two groups will have a couple of tests that will help us definitively diagnose this disease. And uh, if nothing else, at least at that point, we can start separating birds. If we have an aviary and we have 10 positive birds based on a blood test, these birds can be separated out from healthy birds and, and try to get this disease under control mm -hmm. in, in that manner. There's a few other things that are going on. You know, obviously I talked about the anti-inflammatories. Mm -hmm. um, with Bornavirus in other species, they've actually had pretty good success using amantadine, which is an antiviral medication. Um, and getting this disease under control and actually curing it. So um, we're actually going to be looking at that at A&M in the next year, um, doing some pharmacokinetic studies in birds, looking at how they metabolize amantadine and then utilizing it with some of the birds that we have here that have been donated that are positive for, for PDD and see if we can utilize that in conjunction with the anti-inflammatories. And if nothing else, at least buy these birds more time with a better mm -hmm. quality of life. If not, hopefully at some point, if we catch it early enough, maybe even use this drug to cure the disease. Yeah, yeah. And I know you've done a lot of work with those birds to try and give them a great quality of life, a lot, a lot with enrichment and also with training so that, that, that medical care is easy for them. Our goal at A&M, first off, I want everyone to know, you know, basically none of these birds have had anything induced ever. I mean, we just don't induce disease in our parrots. All of the birds have been donated. 
already exposed and infected with the disease, and they were donated by people that were very, very good owners or good breeders that didn't feel comfortable selling a bird that they know had been exposed to this disease. And I have spent the last three years doing everything in my power, as you know, having you come down and doing behavioral work, works with workshops with the students to provide these guys with the best you know, enriched environment you can in a setting like this. Yeah, and there's a, a, a number of people I've met here that care a lot about those birds, so they make sure they get good, good care. Yes, yeah. they are very beloved. <laughs> very much so, and some of them were very, very good training they subjects. They are <laughs> wonderful, wonderful <laughs> birds. They're just amazing birds. Yes. So um, you mentioned that people had donated birds. Um, are you still accepting donations, or is that not part of the, the procedure we, right now? At this point, what we're accepting are birds that are at the end stages of mm. the disease that um, are definitively positive mm-hmm. so that we can actually, you know, basically have some samples available. So right now we have a, you know, we have quite a few birds already that are in the aviary that actually are positive for the test, positive in crop biopsy, but at this point still fairly stable and normal birds if you were just to look at them. Mm-hmm. They're having very, very subtle cl- clinical signs of disease. Um, those are the birds that what I'm hoping to do after we do some more studies on the treatment, put them on a mantadine and, and, and see if we can basically get resolution of some of these lesions right. with that drug. But what we're looking for right now are birds that have been definitively diagnosed with PDD or at least are very, very suspicious of it and are at the end stages of it. Mm-hmm. And what we've done, and we've had several birds come from Houston where owners have brought their birds down because they want to help fight this disease. And what we do is we humanely euthanize the bird and then perform our our autopsy or necropsy. And then owners can basically get the bird back as, you know, Cream cremation yeah. with, with ashes returned. Yeah. Well, it's very generous of people to do that. and It's, it's very and generous. And it obviously important for the long-term survival of these animals. So, um, Are there other ways that people can help, if even if they don't have a bird with PDD? Yes, we can always use money. <laughs> and this has actually been probably the most exp- one of the most expensive projects, I think, that the Shubat Exotic, Health Bur- um, Exotic Bird Health Center has ever taken on. And... Um, we are getting low. (laughs) So it's a very expensive disease to research. Like I said, just um, all the viral testing and the serology tests, all of that just adds up. And we're also looking at collaborating with some other countries. There's um, birds basically all over the world in aviaries that um, PDD is affecting, including some of the really, really endangered birds. And so there's our groups we're also wanting to work with and be able to have the money to go out there and help them with testing and hopefully treatment too. Because some of these birds are very near the brink of extinction and PDD could literally be the, the breaking point for these birds. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we'd hate to lose a species to this disease. Exactly. That would be horrible. Do they, how can they donate money? Do they go to the website here or what's the best way to do that? They can make a check payable to Texas A&M University and send it to the Shubat Exotic Bird Health Center at Texas A&M University, um, College of Veterinary Medicine, mail stop 4467, College Station, Texas, and um, oh, 77843. <laughs> Got to have that zip code. And it's, and it's really important to keep this research alive because you're actually working towards a vaccine, hopefully, right? Yes, there have been vaccines to other viruses, and we are hoping that we can develop not only a diagnostic test, come up with some type of treatment that prolongs their life and a vaccine to help protect healthy birds from this disease.
really exciting news, and I wish you so much success with it. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Sharman. Now let's move on to some upcoming events. On January 23rd through the 25th, it's Parrot Festival in Houston, Texas, and Sharman Hoppus will be there. It'll be a great opportunity to meet her in person. It's hosted by the National Parrot Rescue and Preservation Foundation, and I know they've donated quite a bit to Texas A&M over the years to Shubot Center. February 21st, Robin and I will be giving a parrot training and enrichment workshop in Cincinnati, Ohio. And then February 24th through the 28th is the International Association of Avian Trainers and Educators Annual Conference, which is also in Cincinnati, and both Robin and I will be there. March 14th, I'll be giving a parrot behavior and training workshop in Dallas, Texas. March 28th, I'll be in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, giving a flight workshop there. And then after that, it's April 18th and 19th in Ontario, Canada with Dr. Susan Friedman. I'll be doing a workshop up there, two-day workshop, and the website for that is parrotworkshops.org. May 9th, I'll be in, uh, May 9th and 10th, I'll be in Finland, and May 16th through 17th in France giving a workshop, and May 23rd through 24th in Portugal. And then May 29th through 31st is the Best Parrot Conference in Edison, New Jersey, Behavior Enrichment Science and Training. You can find out more information at that at bestparrotconference.com. If you'd like to learn more about the Shubot Center, visit www.cvm.tamu.edu backslash shubot s-c-h-u-b-o-t you can also go to goodbirdinc.com for more information on the events just posted theleatherelves.com and of course the bestparrotconference.com and if you want to learn a little bit more about what Dr. Hoppe shared with us today, they have a nice article in Bird Talk magazine that you can check out. And Dr. Hoppe is also going to give us a nice tip of the week. Instead of a training tip, we're going to have a parrot care tip of the week. So take it away, Dr. Hoppe. Because birds do have so many infectious diseases, we need to really practice good quarantine. When you bring a new bird home, you need to keep it isolated from your birds that you already have at least 30, 60, 90 days, depending on the species of birds and the age of the bird. And always, always take your bird into a veterinarian to get a well bird checkup. That will really help um, keep birds healthy and help prevent infectious diseases. Great advice. Some upcoming topics for the show. We're going to focus on body language, sexual behavior in parrots, teaching your parrot to play, common myths about parrots, and foraging. It's all the rage. And with that, we're just about out of time. If you have suggestions or questions, please contact Robin at PetLifeRadio.com or Barbara at PetLifeRadio.com. And if you'd like transcripts of the show, please visit PetLifeRadio.com. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Join us every week on Wings and Things and get a bird's eye view of everything there is to know about pet birds and how to make your frequent flyer a happy camper. Wings and Things, only on PetLifeRadio.com.